Have you seen anything really scary on TV or on the internet or at the movies this past week? We went to Jurassic World last night. Did you? <laughs> and I don't remember my dreams. It's probably a good thing. But I think I was running from dinosaurs all night long. I just felt that way when I woke up this morning. But I'm not necessarily <coughs> me. talking about those things that we see on scary TV shows or in the movies, those things that are intended to give us some kind of thrill. And sometimes it's kind of a sick and gruesome thrill. That's bad enough. At home, sometimes when the commercials come on, I just can't use the clicker fast enough to get that off and click it. Oh, there it is again on another station. But I'm talking about the real-life stuff. Have you seen anything really scary or heard about anything? ISIS and what is happening to Christians and people in the Middle East. What Planned Parenthood does to babies. A nuclear Iran who sponsors terrorism all over the world borders open to terrorists and, and murders. But here's what could be the really frightening thing. And it comes out of God's word in the book of Proverbs. You want to see something really scary? Turn over to the first chapter of the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1, that's page 772. This will make you want to change the channel. Proverbs chapter 1 Verse 26, wisdom is speaking. God's wisdom is speaking. This is the voice of wisdom personified. If wisdom can speak, this is what she would say. And what does wisdom have to say? Verse 26 of Proverbs chapter 1, I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your dread comes. When your dread comes like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. Let me tell you what could really, really scare us, and it is this. That for the most part, especially in how decisions are made among our own nation's leaders, we have not chosen the fear of the Lord. Every day in the halls of power, they seek wisdom, they seek knowledge, they seek to make decisions based on what is either right or most often today politically advantageous. And since they don't fear the Lord, wisdom says, I laugh. She makes fun of them. And when they seek wisdom, even if they seek it diligently, wisdom does not answer. So they don't even have the capacity or the ability within them to make a right decision because they have not chosen the fear of the Lord. And when calamity comes, wisdom laughs at them. The Greeks had this figured out. The Greeks had a saying that said, those whom the gods judge, they first make stupid. <laughs> they just looked around and go, that's the way the gods must work. You know, there was a time when the fear of the Lord was a strong motivator in our country. There was a time in our nation when everyone pretty much knew what it meant to fear God, and they made their decisions accordingly. People knew what it meant to live in the fear of the Lord, and we really don't have to go back very far in our history to find it. The fear of the Lord at one time was a strong motivator to do the right thing. It motivated individuals. It, it motivated families. It even motivated governments and, and politicians. After the Union Army was soundly defeated at the Battle of Bull Run, 
And in fact, uh, the South, they called it mockingly the Great Skedaddle. President Abraham Lincoln declared a national day of prayer and fasting. And the proclamation began, It is fit and becoming in all people at all times to acknowledge and revere the supreme government of God, to bow in humble submission to his chastisement, to confess and deplore their sins and transgressions in the full conviction that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and to pray with all fervency and contrition for the pardon of their past offenses and for a blessing upon their present and prospective action. This last week I came across a book by Theodore Roosevelt, and he wrote a book for the purpose and motivating, motivating politicians and, and the public and other influential people when Europe was embroiled in the horrors of World War I. Even President Wilson, who tried to stay out of the war, realized by this time that it wasn't a matter of going to war, it was a matter of the war coming to us. The largest passenger ship in, in the world, the Lusitania, had already been sunk. And the, the excuse by the German U-boats was, well, it was carrying arms. And so American trade, shipping, along with the economy, was crumbling. Pancho Villa was taking advantage of the situation, and he was raiding towns along our southern border, taking over complete towns. And the United States couldn't even muster enough troops to stop Villa let alone the Kaiser of Germany. And when the American people heard about that first modern war and what was going on in Europe and those newfangled military killing machines, those war machines, those instruments of death that could kill and gas hundreds of soldiers in a flash, and then you had the starvation and the suffering of the civilian population, Americans wanted to stay out of it, and who could blame them? So Theodore Roosevelt wrote a book to convince the American people that they must prepare for war because war was imminent. It was going to happen. And the United States must be prepared for war or it would be brutally conquered and defeated in war. And so Roosevelt called his book, Fear God and Take Your Own Part. Fear God and Take Your Own Part. Roosevelt knew that those who fear God would do the right thing, that those who fear God would do the wise thing. For the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And in the introduction of the book, Roosevelt shows us what it means practically, in a real sense, to fear God. And he writes, Fear God and take your own part. Fear God, in the true sense of the word, means love God, respect God, honor God, and all of this can only be done by loving our neighbor, treating him justly and mercifully and in all ways endeavoring to protect him, that is, our neighbor, from injustice and cruelty, thus obeying, as far as our human frailty will permit, the great and immutable law of righteousness. We fear God will do justice to and demand justice for the men within our borders. We are false to the teachings of righteousness if we do not do such justice and demand such justice. We must do it to the weak and we must do it to the strong. We must demand honesty, justice, mercy, truthfulness in our dealings with one another within our own borders. Outside of our own borders, we must treat other nations as we would wish to be treated in return, judging each and any given crisis as we ourselves ought to be judged, that is, by our conduct in that crisis. 
If they do ill, we show that we fear God when we sternly bear testimony against them and oppose them in any way and to whatever extent the need requires. Roosevelt added that to do otherwise is to show that we do not really fear God. On the contrary, we show an odious fear of the devil and a mean readiness to serve him. Where are the Roosevelts today? Roosevelt's words are in the context of a nation that for the most part the people knew what it meant to fear God. And they would be motivated to do what is right because of the fear of God. Many people who hear Roosevelt's words today wouldn't have a clue as to what he was even talking about or if that's the right way to talk as a former president of the United States, let alone be motivated by the wisdom of those words. It's like he's speaking a foreign language. Who is motivated by the fear of the Lord today? And what does the fear of the Lord have to do with justice and honesty and truthfulness? And how we treat one another and how we respond to ISIS or Iran or even Planned Parenthood. And that's what Joshua was concerned about in Joshua chapter 24. We have seen what the fear of the Lord meant for great leaders like Abraham Lincoln and Theodore Roosevelt. What did the fear of the Lord mean to a leader in the Old Testament like Joshua? And why was it essential for God's people to fear the Lord? So turn once again to the 24th chapter of Joshua. Joshua chapter 24, verse 14. These are the words of Joshua. At this time, when he's saying these words, Joshua is 110 years old. He'd been around for a while. He had been a slave in Egypt. He'd lived through the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. He had been the, the military general, the leader, as they fought the battles for the last seven years. This is at the end of seven years of war. People, God's people have settled into the land. There's still many battles to be waged. So Joshua's encouraging them to live in such a way to experience the continued victory. Or to use a phrase that we so often hear today about Iraq, don't throw away the victory. Don't throw away the victory. You have fought hard, don't throw it away. And so he says in verse 24, or verse 14 of Joshua 24, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. Fear the Lord. Joshua knew that the fear of the Lord was essential to serving God and obeying him, and it was essential to their continued victory. So Joshua gives a stern warning to the people. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Joshua is repeating the exact same warning or admonition that these people had heard over and over again. So if you go back to the fourth chapter of Joshua, Joshua chapter 4, now we're going back to the time when they're just getting ready to cross the Jordan River and enter the promised land. This goes back to before the battles of the last seven years. In Joshua chapter 4, Joshua and the people of Israel are about to cross the Jordan River. They're going to enter that land of promise. And a miraculous thing happens. The Jordan River was overflowing during the time of harvest. It was out of its banks. It was impassable. They just couldn't get across. And as the priests who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant on the poles stepped into the water, the water retreated in one big heap, just like a Cecil B. DeMille show movie. The water arose in one big heap and the people crossed on dry land 
And we pick it up in verse 30 or 23 of Joshua chapter 4, where Joshua says to the people, For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed, just as the Lord your God had done to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed. Why? That all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, so that you may know that you may fear the Lord, your God forever. There it is again, that you may fear the Lord. Why did God do this magnificent thing? First of all, so that the peoples of the earth, the people of other nations, might know that the Lord is mighty. They serve a mighty God. It was going to instill fear and terror into their enemies' hearts who were before them. You can just hear their enemies, maybe those in Jericho. Or, did you hear what happened? Those people that God delivered from, from Egypt 40 years before, and there was all those plagues, and then there was the crossing of the Red Sea, and all those things that God did for them in, in the wilderness. Did you hear what happened? They just crossed the Jordan. And would you believe it? The waters spread the same way. They just crossed it, and they're heading our way. The water dried up. They crossed on dry land. Who is this God whom they serve? All the nation of the earth would know that God is mighty. And secondly, God threw back the waters so that his people might fear the Lord forever. It sends terror into the hearts of the enemies of God's people, and it instills the fear of God into the hearts of his people. Through Moses, God had given the exact same warning in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, the word means second law. After the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, God, through Moses, had to give the law all over again. So this is the second law. Deuteronomy 6.13 says, You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship him and serve, or swear by his name. And then Moses goes on to say that this is necessary for your survival. They won't survive if they don't obey the Lord, if they don't fear him. So Moses told them in Deuteronomy 6.24, For the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always and for our survival. Not only is fearing the Lord necessary for victory, it's necessary for survival itself and necessary for their good and their welfare. God had told them over and over again that to fear him was the most important thing. The problem was their track record wasn't very good. The children of Israel had seen God work over and over again. God's mighty hand instilled terror into the Egyptians when he delivered the people out of Egypt. And then when they came into the land of promise, God's mighty hand instilled terror in the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, not parasites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, as God had said it would. Yet God's people failed time after time because they did not choose to fear God. Even though they had been slaves in Egypt, they had been mistreated, they had been abused, they lived in poor conditions with, with not enough food, not enough clothing, their children had even been butchered. They always moaned and complained and wanted to go back to Egypt. And Moses, who grew up in the palaces of Egypt, and had all the benefits of a son of Pharaoh as he was growing up, never wanted to go back to Egypt. Go figure. What's the difference? Moses feared the Lord. 
And he learned how to live in the fear of the Lord because of the burning bush on Mount Sinai and in the tent of meeting. He had chosen to fear the Lord. You see, if you fear God, you serve God. If you don't fear God, you serve someone or something else. In other words, you always serve what or who you fear. You see, even after coming into the promised land, the children of Israel and seeing all that God had done, they had seen his work, they were still in danger of serving something else because they served or wanted to serve something else. Back to Joshua chapter 24. Verse 14 again. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served which were beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we would serve the Lord. And we would think that after seeing all that God had done when he delivered them from Egypt and all that God had done for them when they were children in the wilderness, protecting them, preserving them, providing for them in the wilderness, and all that God had done when they had crossed the Jordan River and God threw back the waters and the walls of Jericho collapsed and they drove out the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Parasites, the, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, you would think that there would be no way that they would go back to the gods of the Egyptians and the god of the Amorites, the Canaanite gods, the Baals, the Molechs. And yet they did time after time after time. Why? Because they did not fear the Lord. In the book of Exodus, go back to Genesis even, through the book of Malachi, chronicles the mighty work of God as God's people, for the most part, over and over again, failed to fear him. If you fear God, you serve God. If you don't fear God, you serve someone or something else, and that something else is whatever you fear more than God. Now, of all people, Abraham, the father of faith, is a good example of this. When in Rome, do as the Romans do, or in the case of Abraham, do as the Egyptians do. So turn back to the book of Genesis. I want us to see three passages in the book of Genesis. Back to Genesis chapter 12 at verse 10, page 13. Boy, that's a low number in your Bible. At this time in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham was known as Abram. God has just given that great promise to Abram. The Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives, from your father's house, to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. Then I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse you those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Got it. Abram obeyed God and went to the land of Canaan. He built an altar, and he worshiped God and then there was a famine in the land. And that's where we pick it up in verse 10 of Genesis chapter 12. It says, Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Now people debate whether Abram lacked faith, that that was the right thing to do to go to Egypt. That's not the point. It's what Abram does when he gets to Egypt that is the point. Verse 11 
It came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, See now, I know you are a beautiful woman. Abram was in his 70s, so was Sarai. She must have been quite a looker. (laughs) They're going to look at you and they're going to say, You're a beautiful woman. Verse 12, And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me but they will let you live. What's happened here? Abraham fears what the Egyptians might do. He's more afraid of the Egyptians than he is of God. And when that happened, wisdom flies out the window. That's what the book of Proverbs said. And foolishness blows in big time. One of the things I love about our Bible, because it is truth, it paints everybody with the warts and everything, you know, you go to other religions, and the founders of their religions, these guys you can't even draw a picture of because he's so holy and perfect or some weird thing. Abraham was a real guy with stuff just like us. But Abraham's thinking at this point is about as harebrained as it gets. Verse 13, Please say that you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, and that I may live on account of you. You would sacrifice yourself, wouldn't you, that, sweetheart? Wouldn't you do that for me? <laughs> what on earth was Abram thinking? How dumb can you get? Abram looked on the Egyptian culture and the Egyptian ways and determined his own survival. He thought he was going to survive by adapting to the ways of the pagan Egyptians. Who's going to know? We're in a foreign land. It's best for us just to blend in. Let's go with the cultural flow. And what happens? Pharaoh takes Sarai into his own house And God intervenes big time by bringing great plagues onto Pharaoh and his house. You see, God's promise to Abram was, you're going to be a blessing to the other nations. And now Abraham brings a curse on the Egyptians. So Pharaoh's men ran them out of town. End of story, you would think. Turn over to Genesis chapter 20, the 20th chapter of Genesis, verse 1. 20th chapter of Genesis is like deja vu all over again. This is right after Abraham rescued his nephew Lot from God's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham witnessed the mighty hand of God there. Verse 1 of Genesis chapter 20. Now Abraham journeyed from there toward the land of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur, and he journeyed or sojourned in Gera. Gera, it's a Philistine town at this time. So far, so good. But get a load of how Abraham introduces his wife. Verse 2. Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. (laughs) She is my sister. Why would Abraham do such a dumb thing all over again? Start looking over at verse 11 for a minute, but let me tell you what happens in the meantime. King Abimelech of the Philistines of Gera took Sarah into his palace to make her one of his own wives. And God visits at Abimelech, a pagan king, in his dreams and warned him about the sin that he was about to commit. When Abimelech confronted Abraham concerning Abraham's sin, his deception, look at Abraham's excuse at verse 11. Chapter 20, verse 11. Abraham said, Because I thought, surely there is no fear of God in this place. There's no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. 
Abraham feared the place where there was no fear of God more than he feared the Lord. Makes no sense whatsoever. When we don't fear the Lord, wisdom goes out the window. On account of his fear, once again, Abraham determined that he was going to survive by adapting to the godless culture around him. In the story, you would think, turn over to Genesis chapter 26. <laughs> 26 chapter of Genesis. By this time, Abraham's passed away. And here God is going to reiterate his promises to Abraham's son, Isaac. Isaac, the son of promise. Here is the word of the Lord to Isaac in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 20. Same song, different verse. Same song, different generation. Beginning at verse 1 of 26, chapter of, of Genesis. Now there was a famine in the land. Beside the previous, previous famine that occurred in the days of Abraham, so Isaac went to Gerar, to Ambilic, king of the Philistines. The Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Stay in the land which I will tell you. Good plan. Don't go anywhere near Egypt. Verse 3, the Lord says, Sojourn in this land and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands. One day this is going to be yours and it's going to belong to all your descendants. And I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and give your descendants all these lands and by your descendants all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge. Of course, Abraham did a lot of obeying of God after that, that silliness before. Because he kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, my laws. So Isaac lived in Gerar. Verse 7. When the men of the place asked about his wife, he said, She is my sister. <laughs> Why? For he was afraid to say, he was fearful, my wife thinking, the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebecca, for she is beautiful. Now, is the, the moral of the story, don't marry beautiful women, or, <laughs> or quit lying about this? You know beautiful women get you in trouble, but only because you make your own trouble. Isaac was afraid. Just like his father, he feared the men of that place more than he feared the Lord. Verse 8. It came about when he had been there a long time that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out through a window and saw, and behold, Isaac was caressing his wife, Rebekah. Then Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, certainly she is your wife. How then can you say she is my sister? And Isaac said to her, because I, I said I might die on account of her. Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech charged all the people saying, he who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. By this time, Ambimelech, having experienced both father and son, he must have been thinking, what is the matter with these people? <laughs> Twice their God protect, protected them and preserved them in their own land. The first time, God came to me in dreams, says the pagan Ambimelech. 
of the Philistines and kept me from doing something that would have brought a curse upon our nation. The second time, I'm just minding my own business, look out the window, and I, I know you've lied to me. And yet, you guys are still more afraid of us and the men of this place than you fear your own God. Than you fear your own God. When Isaac feared the people of the land more than he feared God, he disobeyed God. Instead of being a blessing to the people of the land, Isaac's behavior threatened to bring a curse down upon them. It's a serious, serious thing for God's people to try to blend in to their culture. And it's no less for us. If we just try to blend in, if we just try to go with the flow and say, oh, that's not such a, you know, whatever, you know. Uh, I don't think most Christians realize that's going to bring a curse on upon our land. Not God's blessing. Not God's blessing. And when we try to blend into the culture, we just show that we fear men more than we fear God. Next week, we're going to start to see in God's word how the fear of the Lord affects our intimacy with him. How we can draw ever and ever closer in communion and intimacy with him. That our fear of God, we sang in one of the songs today that came right out of the scripture, those who fear the Lord are the friends of God. How can you be a friend with somebody that you fear? And we're going to start looking at that in depth. But I want to leave you with a thought this morning that I'm going to get to in a little bit. Because this has been pretty much all negative, and, and I want to, to leave you with another thought. Before we get to that, recognize once again that when we fear the Lord, we serve him. We obey him. And as we have seen, when we fear something or someone else more than we fear God, then we serve that someone or something else. That's why people will serve money. Or they will serve success, or they will serve wealth, or whatever it is. You know, like we used to have bumper stickers on cars. I haven't seen one for a long time, at least one that didn't offend me. <laughs> but anyway, you know, I, I like the bumper sticker that said, I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. And because I, I owe, I have to go to work. And didn't Jesus say a little something about that? No one can serve two masters. For either you will hate the one and love the other. When you serve the wrong master, you show you hate God. For he will devoted to one, despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon or wealth or, or riches. And why would someone serve these kinds of riches? Because they fear the consequences of not having the riches more than a person fears God. We tend to serve whatever we fear the most. And fear is a powerful motivator. Someone has said that maybe fear is the most powerful motivator in the world. You know, think of what we call phobias. That's what the Greek word for fear is in, in the New Testament. You know, it's a motivator. Sometimes fear is paralyzing. We can be so filled with fear that we don't know what to do. So what does it mean to fear God? Fearing God means to have such a reverence for him that it has such a great impact on our lives and how we fear. Among other things that we're going to see in the coming weeks is the fear of God is reverencing him. It's obeying him. It's submitting to his discipline. That, that's a tough one. And it's worshiping him in awe. 
You know, I like to say this. I, I don't mind it when Christian young people say that's awesome. As long as they're recognizing it's only awesome because there's an awesome God behind it. And it's an awesome God who did it. Because search the scriptures. The only one, the only thing in all of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, which is awesome, is God himself. Awe means, awful means to be full of, of awe, full of fear, literally. Only God is awesome. So when we're saying someone or something is awesome, I hope we recognize that God, our awesome God, is behind that. And Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29 gives us a good description of this. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This reverence and awe is exactly what it means to, to fear God, what it means as Christians to fear God. And we're going to be taking a very close look over the next few weeks. What does it mean to hold God in such reverence and fear in his awesomeness that we worship him? And in his awesomeness, it becomes the motivating, the main factor for us to surrender to the creator of the universe and obey him. But here's the thought that I want to leave you with this morning. Leave you with this thought. The fear of the Lord was the motivating factor for Joshua to serve the Lord. The fear of the Lord is essential for our victory in the Christian life. And here is the thing. When we fear God, when we fear the Lord, we don't have to fear anything else. We don't have to fear anything else. When we fear God, we don't have to fear anyone else. When people in our country were suffering during the Great Depression... Newly elected U.S. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt uttered the now famous words, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. FDR was trying to motivate the country that was very fearful by showing something them something that, that is worse than the fears and the horrors of the Depression, and that thing is worse is fear itself. The worst fear is fear itself. And when people operate out of fear, they always do the wrong thing. They always do the wrong thing. And they're always subject to what they fear. Now, FDR would have been wise to listen to the counsel of his cousin, Teddy, <laughs> who said, fear God and take your own part. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, according to Abraham Lincoln and the psalmist <laughs> and the writer of Proverbs. When we fear God, we don't have to fear anything else. And we, we don't have to fear that we'll become subjects to anyone or anything else. As believers in Jesus Christ, the writer, to the, book, the writer of the Hebrews said, we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Cannot be shaken. Cannot be shaken by Islam. Cannot be shaken by ISIS or, or any other thing. His promise is that nothing will separate us from the love of God. He will never, never leave us. Romans 8.15 says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The more we get to know our Abba, Father, 
the deeper our intimacy with him, the greater our godly fear and awe of reverence of him, the less and less we will fear anything else. But that's where we're going to have to leave it. Until next time. Shall we pray? Father, this morning we sang, we choose the fear of the Lord, for the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Joshua said, choose this day who you will serve. He says, fear the Lord and serve him. Father, men like Joshua, men like Moses, as we've seen in our Sunday school class, women like Ruth and Naomi, Learn to know what it is to live in fear of you, God. In awesome, reverential, not only respect, but knowing that you are the creator of all things. You are king over all things. You are sovereign. And Father, I pray that as we come into these next few messages on these Sunday mornings to understand what it means to fear you, God that you will draw us ever and ever closer into relationship with you, into a deeper intimacy. As we talked about Boaz this morning, Lord, in Sunday school class, he was a man who lived in your immediate presence. <laughs> who can we fear when we live in your presence? And for this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.